Welcome to the class of the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is Thursday, November 12, 2020. We are going to be discussing tonight what happened in Hungary in 1956, the uprising which the bourgeoisie calls the revolution, which we call the counter-revolution, and why we call it the counter-revolution. I have a book I urge people to get called The Truth About Hungary by Herbert Abtaker, which was written in 57. It's an excellent book. It's one of the few that gives the correct analysis of what happened to the Jews, how they were strung up on the lampposts because many of them were members of the party in Hungary, etc. It's called The Truth About Hungary by Herbert Abtaker. So I'm currently going to read from Chapter 4. The book is called The Counter-Revolution in Hungary in Light of Marxism-Leninism by Gyula Kalai, and I will begin reading now. International imperialism, in order to mislead and delude the workers, committed the greatest swindle in determining the character of the October events. It alleged that what took place in Hungary was a, quote, revolution, unquote, and a, quote, national liberation struggle, unquote. What took place in Hungary in October and November was incontestably a counter-revolution. Not only and not primarily the acts of terror prove this, although the fact that the terror was aimed at the communists and other consistent supporters of the people's democracy, that the red flags and the red stars, the symbols of the international working class movement, were trampled in the mud, was enough to show the character of the events and the direction they could be expected to take. The decisive factor is the class content of the events. The revolution is the great social change which is prepared by the development of the productive forces and in which the oppressed class, representing social progress, overthrows the power of the old ruling class and radically changes relations of production and the social order based on them. The socialist revolution places power into the hands of the proletariat, but the counter-revolution puts the bourgeoisie in power. Last autumn, the latter process took place in our country of Hungary. With the assistance of the revisionist traders, the members of the former ruling class, the former factory owners, landlords, bankers, army officers, gendarmes, I could be pronouncing that wrong, Aerocross fascists, and various disreputable elements and adventurers made their appearance everywhere, and in many places they assumed control. Those who wished to defend the counter-revolution even concocted a complicated theory according to which the October armed uprising was actually the second stage of a socialist revolution occurring in our country, that is, revolution within the revolution, and this was made necessary by the bureaucratism of the state and party leadership before October. This is essentially the position of Comrade Kardej, too. But in our country, there was a people's democratic system before October, too, which is a specific form of the dictatorship of the proletariat. Even if, in many respects in our country, the dictatorship of the proletariat was distorted. But errors cannot be rectified with an armed uprising. The armed uprising is the means employed by one class to overthrow the rule of another and obtain power for itself. An armed uprising against the dictatorship of the proletariat 
can necessarily be nothing other than counter-revolution, which was extolled to the skies by all international reaction. The armed struggle of October in Hungary was not a second stage of a socialist revolution, but the first stage of a bourgeois restoration. And none of this is changed by the fact that the counter-revolution employed, quote, democratic, unquote, slogans to disguise its aims. The character of the events should be judged not on the basis of the slogans, but of the acts of those participating in them. The armed uprising did not want to, quote, democratize, unquote, the people's democratic system. It wanted to overthrow it and replace it with a bourgeois system. The French newspaper Le Monde, which can hardly be accused of sympathizing with the people's democracies, wrote the following in an article on October 27th, quote, it is becoming more and more apparent that the rebels are fighting not against the way the system functions, but against the system itself, unquote. But in the November 1st issue, the following could be quoted from its October 31st report, quote, by the time dusk, masked by the smoke of the battles, descended on Budapest, which is the capital of Hungary, it was clear to everyone that the people's democracy was no more, unquote. It was really not their fault that it did not happen this way. The counter-revolution also voiced, quote, national, unquote, slogans, but the character of the events did not in any way become national. The only error in the relations between our country, Hungary, and the Soviet Union was that certain Soviet technical experts, apart from much useful guidance, sometimes gave us incorrect advice and we accepted it. Our state and party organs committed even greater mistakes when, despite warnings by the Soviet comrades, they uncritically copied the Soviet model and slavishly imitated the Soviet methods, which had evolved amidst completely different circumstances. Despite the relationship which had arisen between our country and the Soviet Union following Hungary's liberation was a relationship of a new quality between socialist countries. This was one of the sources and conditions for the great results we achieved in the building of socialism. The economic agreements concluded with the Soviet Union were especially advantageous for our country. The real truth is that the Soviet Union provided far-reaching support for the people's democratic countries, including Hungary, to the prejudice of her own immediate interests. The most recent shining proof of this was the aid extended in crushing the counter-revolution, when Soviet soldiers again shed their blood for the genuine freedom of the Hungarian people. And beyond this, the great economic assistance which the agreements concluded on the occasion of the Moscow talks will provide us. I wanted to mention a couple of things to give a background of what happened. First of all, Hungary was run by fascists, real, live fascists. Members of a group called the Iron Cross, who was led by General Horthy, H-O-R-T-H-Y an ally of Nazi Germany and fascist Mussolini and the Empire of Japan. That's who these people were. Anti-Semites to the core, pogromists, taking Jews out, sending them to concentration camps and exterminating them like they were a species that was subhuman. These are the people that were in the counter-revolution. Who else was in that counter-revolution? The church. As a longtime Roman Catholic involved with the church again, I could tell you that the church has a history of supporting fascist 
real fascist sources in the period of the 20s and 30s. The Pope, Pope Pius Twelfth, I believe his name was, he was known by a lot of bourgeois historians as the fascist Pope. Why did they call him the fascist Pope? Because he gave blessings to Hitler when they forced Austria to join Germany in the Anschluss in the early 30s because they wanted a greater Germany. This was the church that allowed the Anschluss to happen and blessed it, blessed it from the pulpits, told the people who went to church, you've got to support the Anschluss. There was a vote, and you have to support it and say, ja, yes. So I want to give you the background of the church. This is not the church of 2020 led by the current pope. This is a whole different church. The current pope came out with a proclamation saying capitalism is not ethical. Okay? Their pope at that time was pro, not only pro-capitalist, but pro-fascist. Remember, imperialism goes along with fascism hand-in-hand, and as Comrade Lenin said, it's the highest stage of capitalism. So the church in Hungary was led by a cardinal named Vincenti. This cardinal worked with the Iron Cross when they were in power. When they were overthrown by the Red Army in 1945, the Iron Cross, the church still supported them. This is the church that supported the so-called revolution against socialism. It was a church of the wealthy, a church publicly supporting fascism. So let's not forget this, and let's constantly remind people that the church played different roles at different times in history. And at that time, it played the role of supporting fascism. I have a general question on the conditions and, I guess, the context leading up to the counter-revolution, if there's any way to get a little more color on that. There are different theories. I'll tell you the common theory that I've heard in my years in the party. The people that were put in power in Hungary were the most staunch pro-Stalin elements, very, very clearly not wanting to play any games with pro-fascist elements that are in Hungary that were there. Came down like a ton of bricks. This is one theory. I don't know if I believe it, if I accept it. But that, therefore, it was so harsh that people rebelled against it. That's one theory, comrade. It's held by a lot of anti-Stalinists, my experience. Abdekar, who came into the movement, wrote a book. It was critical of the Stalinist leadership in Hungary. Raskowski? Raskowski, Raskowski, thank you. Raskowski. I think that's the way they pronounce it. And so notice when this happened in 56. What happened in 56? There was an anti-Stalin infection going through the communist movement because of the Soviet Party Congress, where we should remember this, the 22nd, where Khrushchev was instrumental in condemning Comrade Stalin's administration. Let's call it that. So that's one theory that they were too rough, and therefore this is what happened. I'm going to stop there. Do we know who had interests 
primarily in the counter-revolution than if it was perpetrated by outside forces? Well, of course, you know the answer to that. Everybody does by this time. The Central Intelligence Agency. Remember, the Dulles brothers, D-U, D like a dog, U-L-L-E-S, were involved with the Central Intelligence Agency. The position of the government at the time in this country was to roll back communism in Eastern Europe, very similar to the current regime change that the U.S. is involved with in Eastern Europe. In Belarus, what they did in the Ukraine, the same thing. It's a rollback. So it was mostly by the CIA that worked with internal elements. Don't forget Radio Free Europe was organized and was given birth by the CIA. And I think that's obvious. When we were reading and they're talking about the way that the counter-revolutionaries are trying their best with their slogans to talk about democracy. And at first they act like they're not criticizing the system, but then it's very clear once you look at them more than a second that that's the only thing they really complain about is the system and how similar this is to all the stuff that's going on from Hong Kong to Belarus, as you had mentioned, Bolivia, Venezuela, of course, they keep talking about that's not a democracy down there, all this kind of stuff. They can't try to actually come up with legit arguments. They just come up with this, it's not democratic enough. So that's all. Thank you. Thank you. I think the phenomenon of anti-Stalinism, if we see it after the October Revolution, proves that, on the contrary, that Stalin's position with respect to the international communist movement was staunch and Marxist Venice because when he was alive, Stalin said that even under the dictatorship of the proletariat, there were exploitative classes who were hiding as progressive forces, and he indicated that the party must continuously conduct ideological battles to make the proletarian revolution or the dictatorship of the proletariat strong in terms of foundations. So I think most of the anti-Stalinism actually ended up being counter-revolution and imperialist and restoration of the bourgeoisie in all countries. So I think Stalin was a very far-sighted and a staunch Marxist-Leninist in history. So I think there is a total misunderstanding by all movements that claim that Stalinism was the source of the problem in any given socialist country. Thank you, Carmen. It was very well said. I just want to add to what you said. Comrade Stalin said very clearly that during the building of socialism, the class struggle is not lessened, it's intensified. Intensified. Which means as you're building socialism, the forces opposed to socialism, usually 99% of them, are those who lost something in nationalization, where the state took over the means of production. These people lost fortunes, lost a lot of money and power in the bourgeois society. These people are trying to take it back. So the class struggle is intensified. So obviously this is the event that fractured the British Communist Party. So at the time, did they know that the counter-revolution was ran basically by fascists and committing pogroms? The counter-revolution was a joint effort not only by the fascists, but by those people within the communist movement who were social democrats. 
and you know your history. Social Democrats, on a certain level, get along more with fascists than they do with communists. That is obvious. Nagy, who was in the party, was supposedly in the leading party structure, was one of the leaders of the counter-revolution. What was his policies? Well, he wrote a book in which he says in his policies what he's calling for. He's calling for neutralization. He wanted Hungary to be neutral. Here, Hungary was in the middle of Europe. On one side was the U.S. and the NATO countries. On the other side was the Warsaw Pact. He wanted Hungary to be neutral. What would that mean? Look at the map. That means that Hungary would serve as a knife in the stomach of the Soviet Union and its allies. This is what Nagy called for. Nagy's ideology was again repeated in 1968, almost 10 years later, in Czechoslovakia. Alexander Dubček, who was the leader of the party, one of the sections of the party in Czechoslovakia, had the same ideology. Alexander Dubček had a finance minister who is college roommates with none other than Gorbachev. So here you have that infection being carried on. Gorbachev followed the same policies in 1985. That's all. Thank you. This counter belief that was pushed by Khrushchev against Stalin and against pretty much what is essentially the Marxist-Leninist movement and what is essentially has broke out across the entire communist movement from them picking sides either pro or against Stalin, do you think that has been the reason that has led up to Poland becoming as anti-communist and reactionary as it has become? I don't see that. Other people could have different information. I don't see that. I see the counter-revolution as going beyond Marxist-Leninism. Remember, Khrushchev, incorrectly, was at the United Nations with his famous slogan, we will bury you. The position of the party, if you look at the literature at the time, was that communism was around the corner. And that was incorrect. It was not around the corner. So I don't see Khrushchev as a social democrat. If anything, I see him close to an ultra-left viewpoint, similar in some ways with Trotskyism, but not on the right, but on the left. So what you're saying is that, no, I, I don't see that. Remember, the parties in Eastern Europe were forced to join together with social democratic parties. Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, all perfect examples. What they created was a fatherland front, F-R-O-N-T, where the social democratic parties in Germany, it's a famous example in East Germany, the Socialist Unity Party, SED, that was an amalgamation of the Social Democrats and the old Communist Party. So in a certain way, the leadership forced it because they felt it would better serve building socialism if there wasn't antagonistic forces. So it's more than the thing would happen with Khrushchev. It's much deeper than that. That's all. Thank you. I am going to continue the reading. Quote, the deeds of the counter-revolution did not serve but betrayed the true interests of the nation. 
By breaking away from the socialist camp and relying on the imperialists, they did not safeguard but sold out the country's independence and freedom. The interference of the United Nations would have placed our country, Hungary, into a state of dependence on the imperialists for a long time. The chauvinistic cries and territorial demands aimed at the neighboring countries, which became louder and louder during the counter-revolution, threatened to precipitate war, and this was not in the interests of the Hungarian people, any more than the armed struggle into which many young people were dragged against their own true national interests. The Imre Nagy Lozanski faction, well before the October events, made every endeavor to overshadow the great idea of proletarian internationalism, to weaken the spirit of proletarian internationalism in the masses, loosen our relations with the countries of the socialist camp, and first of all with the Soviet Union, so that in the end they could tear our country away from the camp of the peace-loving peoples building socialism. The days of the October counter-revolution showed where separation from our friends leads. They showed that from the renouncing of proletarian internationalism, a straight road leads to capitalist restoration. The capitalist restoration did not succeed only because our friends and brothers, first of all the Soviet Union, fulfilling their international duties, provided assistance for the Hungarian revolutionary forces in defeating the counter-revolution. The armed assistance of the Soviet troops again saved the national independence and freedom of our country and saved our people's democratic order. The military aid given to us in the November days is tantamount to the second liberation of our people. It is no wonder that in the hearts of our people, the feeling of gratitude and love is growing ever stronger towards those who, led by the great ideals of proletarian internationalism, again extended their protecting arms towards us and did not permit our country and people to become the prey of the counter-revolution. The whole socialist world camp stirred to support us. In defense of our cause, from the mighty Chinese realm of 660 million to Albania of 1.5 million. The progressive forces of the working class throughout the world, every progressive person to whom the cause of freedom and national independence is sacred and precious, stirred to support us. In the Hungarian question, proletarian internationalism stood the test so brilliantly that it was without parallel in the history of mankind. Our great friend, the Soviet Union, defended us with arms, the entire socialist camp supported us, and all progressive mankind was with us, and this was why we triumphed. The aid of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp obliges us to strengthen the ideals of proletarian internationalism continuously in our party and in the masses of the working people, and to do away with the mistaken ideas spread by Imre Nagy and his faction as quickly as possible. We must make every honest person understand that the Soviet Union has never threatened the independence of other people. On the contrary, the Soviet Union has been and will continue to be the most resolute defender of the independence of threatened peoples. The examples of history also prove this. Before the Second World War, the Soviet Union also championed the independence of such countries as Austria and Czechoslovakia, which were threatened by the Hitlerite fascists. The vigorous action of the Soviet Union saved Egypt's independence too. Our country was able to regain its national independence and liberation from the fascist yoke because the Soviet Union defeated Hitlerite Germany. The fact that the Soviet Union is our friend and helped is not an obstacle, but the best guarantee of our national independence. The military assistance provided the Hungarian people by the Soviet troops was the action of socialist forces against the counter-revolution. The action of forces of which the revolutionary forces of the Hungarian people are an organic part. 
The forces rallied around the Soviet army and the Hungarian revolutionary workers and peasants' government are two detachments of unified forces of identical nature. Anyone who calls the assistance of the Soviet Union, quote, alien interference, unquote, casts aside the essence of proletarian internationalism. One of the main lessons of the October counter-revolutionary events is that the unity of the socialist camp must be strengthened. The most experienced, most influential, and strongest member of the camp, and therefore the leader and center of the camp, is the Soviet Union, which is building a communist society. Accordingly, we must consistently foster and continually strengthen Hungarian-Soviet friendship. Similarly, we must clarify the situation in the question of the mutual relationship between proletarian internationalism and true patriotism. The Hungarian Socialist Workers' Party, as the preserver and perpetuator of the nearly four decades heritage of the revolutionary communist movement, is following the principles of proletarian internationalism, but at the same time, it declares itself patriotic. In this country, just as in every other country, the communists fought the most for the country's genuine interests, independence, and prosperity. There is no political party or group, and there never has been any in the country which has given as many martyrs for the country's independence and freedom as the Communist Party. This also obliges us to strengthen in our people the ideals of proletarian internationalism, which are in most complete harmony with the ideas of true patriotism. Can you take questions? So I was listening to the Soviet Union's engagement with the Hungarian counter-revolution, but I was also thinking about overall, how do we balance proletariat internationalism while simultaneously respecting national self-determination? National liberation is identification of a country's national, what the word is, liberation from colonial and foreign entrenchments. That's what national liberation is. Proletarian internationalism deals with the working class, that the working class of one country supports the working class of another country. That's proletarian internationalism. It is not different on a certain level, but on another level, it is quite different. The national liberation movement is a multi-class effort, whereas proletarian internationalism is just on our class. So when we have one working class society supporting another working class in another country, that's proletarian internationalism. When we support the Cuban working class, we support the Cuban people who have a government that represents their working class. So when we support the Cuban people, we're not supporting really Cuba. As a proletarian internationalism, we're supporting the Cuban working class. So I hope that gives some difference. Thank you. I was just curious if besides their interest aligning, if the current regime of Orban has any links to the counter-revolution. Orban was at one time a member of the ruling party in Hungary. People should know this. He's not a Johnny-come-lately. He was political before. Like many people in the old Communist Party, whether it's Russia or Hungary or East Germany, 
these were elements that were susceptible to bourgeois influences. They were readily available to accommodate their ideology to the bourgeoisie. And that's why he went from one position to the next until finally, like Putin, he winds up on the anti-communist side of history. Putin is the same kind of thing, no different. And there were large numbers of people who, for whatever reason, gave up their formal loyalty. So that's who he is. The very fact that there are reactionary sentiments within Hungarian society, nationality, is no different than what we had in other countries. If you look at what's going on between Azerbaijan and uh, what's the other Armenia? name? Yes. They were brothers, and there was married intermarriage during Soviet times. But once that brotherhood of nations was destroyed, the bourgeoisie in each section of the, each country pushes for nationalism. If you read my position on an e-blast where I said nationalism and internationalism, its implications for our party today, in it, I quote Lenin, where he talks about there are reactionary parts of nationalism and there are progressive parts. Certain points in history, reactionary is progressive, like in the National Liberation Movement. But in the issue of a developed country, nationalism can lead to fascism easily. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, got it. I got it. My question had to do with playing devil's advocate as far as what the position was regarding the Soviet Union protecting the sovereignty of nations and never having acted against those interests as far as the Winter War in Finland and the integration of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. I think that the Poland partial occupation was strategic, but can you offer some insight into that? We have a pamphlet called What Happened in Poland in Those Years. It was produced in those years. I don't know if you know, but the Soviets had asked the Polish government, which was an anti-Semitic government. Did you all know that? One of the leaders was a general who came from a German background called Mannerheim. Even the name is German. And that's why Finland was very sympathetic to its Germany in the 30s. Now, the Soviets saw what was going on easily, you could see, so they told the government in Finland, Leningrad is too close to the border. If there's a war, the Germans will come right in. And that's exactly what happened, by the way. The 900-day siege of Leningrad, which was a murderous, people were eating rats and sawdust and shoe leather because the Germans had surrounded the city. So the Soviet government knew this was going to happen. And so, just like they knew the war was going to happen, that's why they had a non-aggression pact in '39 with Germany, because the West was not willing to have an agreement. The Soviets were calling for a collective security. You should write this down. And collective security started when Italian troops invaded Ethiopia. And the League of Nations... Russia was a member of the League of Nations, and the Russian representative 
stood up and said that we need collective security against the aggression of Italy. And the West never wanted to do that because they were hoping that Germany would go towards the Soviet Union and destroy it. So what happened in Finland, they sat down, they met, and the Finnish government rejected it. They said, no, we're not going to move the border X number of miles so that give more land to Leningrad. And the Soviets were going to give them land in the upper part of the northern part of where the Soviet Union and Finland come together. But it didn't happen. So when it was obvious that the Finnish government was working with the Germans, that precipitated a war. That's a fact. Do some research on that. Thank you. So as we know, Khrushchev's revisionism marked a break with traditional revolutionary Marxism-Leninism as we know it. When Khrushchev decided to come in with the Red Army to liberate Hungary, because with revisionists, it's due to a lack of ideological grounding. So they'll shift ultra-left and they'll shift right. I'm wondering Khrushchev's rationale in this instance. Was this just an instance where he did fall in the right place? Or if not, how would it have differed from a normal Marxist-Leninist rationale? The Enver Hoaxa people, the people who are anti-Soviet, who say that the Soviet Union was imperialist after 1956, their analysis is that whatever Khrushchev did was for Russian nationalism. That's their analysis. I think their analysis, like everything else, is faulty. Dialectically, study what happened in Khrushchev. Let's lose dialectics. At different points in history, communist leaders served a progressive place in history. Tito, Tito, during the 40s, during the occupation by Germany, led the partisan movement, the communist partisan movement against the Chetniks. Whereas in 1956-57, Tito took a different position, which harmed the unity of the world communist movement. So at different points in history, people play Here 90 different seconds. roles. And I think that's the best answer to that. It's not so simple. It depends chronologically in history where they are. Thank you. I don't know if you know about this, Angelo, but I'm pretty sure, and I could be wrong, I believe that the term tanky was actually originated because of the actions of the Soviet Union and Hungary in 1956. I didn't know if you knew anything more about that. Yes, I do. I heard that slander constantly from petty bourgeois radicals. Petty bourgeois radicals, that's what they are. These are basically middle-class people who have become radicalized. And many of them are not even working. They're unemployed, so they form into what Marx called declassed. When you're not unemployed for a long period of time and you're away from the working class, you become declassed. Look up that term. Um, uh, and that's where it comes from. The tanky term comes from petty bourgeois radicals. It doesn't come from communists. I don't know any communist who uses that word. None. The topic of tanky, this originated specifically in opposition to communists, mostly in Britain, that were supporting the USSR crushing the fascist coup that was happening in Hungary. 
it was created and mostly popularized by Trotskyites and anarchists, most of these ultra-left-leaning groups, that pretty much pushed against the communist forces. This has become so popularized that it even has transferred over to the ultra-left forces in America and the rest of Europe and so on. This became a massive slanderous insult towards pretty much anyone. It's even changed its origin, its main term, which was mainly going after what was considered authoritarian socialists, even so-called Stalinists and Maoists, as they call them, to now essentially just becoming an insult against anyone who is even remotely communist. That's pretty much where the term originated. When people actually use this term, the best way to shoot back at it is at least I support a government that crushed a fascist coup. Thank you. I was just wondering if there was any controversy surrounding after the counter-revolution, crushing of the counter-revolution. I know the term goulash communism gets thrown around a lot as a term, and I was wondering if there was any controversy surrounding Hungary's socioeconomic moves that somewhat differed from the Soviet Union at the time. In 53, there was an uprising in East Germany. It all happened at the same time, by the way. Study this. It was all the same, give or take a year or two. 53 was Poland was 53 also, an uprising in Poland. There are not coincidences. It was all led in a symphonic effort by the American counterintelligence. They could not have done it if there wasn't people inside these countries that supported them. But it was a majority of the people. You don't need a majority, you need a minority. I was wondering if the Communist Party USA at the time, if there was any controversy about the changes, the changes of yeah. Hungary. Every time this happens, people leave the party internationally, because the bourgeoisie still controls the mass media. And people left the party in 39. Large numbers of Jewish members left throughout the world, because they thought that the Soviets were going into bed with the Nazis. We were not able to give the analysis to as many people as we wanted to. So from 39 all the way to 56, all the way to 68 in Czechoslovakia, even up to the area of 79 when the Afghan revolution took place and Soviets helped them because Brzezinski, who was along with Carter, Democrats, again, the Democrats, always the Democrats, who were pushing for containment and change in that part of the world. So, yeah, it did affect everything. Remember, Workers' World Party was born in 1959, and you should know the reason why they were born. They split from the original Trotskyite Party called the Socialist Workers' Party in the United States. And you know what they split over? Hungary. They opposed the counter-revolution in Hungary, Workers' World Party. Sam Marcy was the general secretary of that group. So I just want you to know it gave birth to the WWP. So far, some of the other comrades have mentioned how part of this counter-revolution opposition was coming from the left communist position. I believe Angelo had said that that's where Khrushchev was coming from, essentially, in his anti-Stalinism. 
And I think a really good example of this in modern day is there's been left communist opposition to the events in Hong Kong. You have people, again, calling out the quote-unquote tankies for supporting the CPC's efforts to suppress what now obviously can be seen as more of this U.S. counterintelligence meddling and international meddling by the bourgeoisie to detract from uh, communist China. Can you expand a little more on this left communist position and what leads people into this wrong line of thinking? Just let me tell you one thing. 89, there was a counter-revolution in China. 1989, Gorbachev goes and visits China on their anniversary in Tiananmen Square. You must have heard about this. Mm-hmm. Wherever Gorbachev went, he brought his infection with him. Remember, he was in Berlin celebrating the 40th anniversary of the German Democratic Republic. And like a true mafia that he is, Gorbachev, he kissed his Hanukkah on both sides of the cheek. Within a week or two, GDR was no more. Okay? He did the same thing in China. The Tiananmen Square thing, we should have a whole study on that. That Tiananmen Square thing was led by the sons and the daughters, right, of party leaders with their cameras and their well-dressed uniforms and their cameras from the West. They were leading that thing, and it was being pushed by Gorbachev. So without going much deeper into it, we need to talk about it. Who is behind these counter-revolutions? Who are behind them today? Who are behind them then? Previously, you had spoken on the conditions that led to the counter-revolution, and you were able to get to the anti-communist theory, and I was wondering what the other theory was. The other theory is the bourgeois theory, and then the third theory is the traditional communist theory, that this was all because of CIA entering a socialist country and spreading lies and rumors. There's a certain amount of truth in that. When I was in the Soviet Union in 1976, when I lived there, I noticed that the CIA could have a field day. This was during the Brezhnev years. Nobody stopped people from talking to foreigners. They talk to me anytime they want. They know you're American right away by the way you dress. You stand out like a sore thumb in those countries in 76 anyway. And they come up to you and they want to get money from you, et cetera, et cetera. So it's obvious that this third analysis that the CIA is responsible for much of this to me, is very valid. Thank you. I wanted to touch a little bit on something that Angelo said earlier about how the leader of the counter-revolution, one of his ideas was neutrality. And to me, that's kind of like a dog whistle, where there is no true neutrality. You look in pre-World War II, what did neutral Sweden do? They supported the Nazis. And what did neutral Switzerland do? Support of the Nazis. And what did neutral America do? They gave weapons to the fascists as well. Neutrality to me is just an open door for capitalist bourgeois to get a foothold. And there really is no neutrality. It's either capitalism or socialism. Excellent. That's what Lenin said. There's no third way. It's either socialism or capitalism. There is no third way. Thank you, Carmen. You're correct. Someone else commented on this earlier. I just also want to comment on the similarities between, well, 
the slight similarities between the counter-revolution in Hungary and Hong Kong, although in Hong Kong that hasn't resulted in an armed conflict yet. I really wanted to thank everyone for the class tonight because this is a very important type of class, especially for us. We all know that being Americans and living in the biggest bourgeois nation that we're trained to view events like this completely opposite of what we heard tonight. And I think back to the one college class I took on Eastern Europe during this period and people like Emory Nash and Alexander Dubček are elevated to heroes, these people who fought against the working people of these countries and fought to bring them back into the fold of Western capital. That's why we're here in essence, but it's also important for us to understand that we know dealing with the counter-revolutionaries over here, and we know that they don't go away overnight. We have to be vigilant about that and push forward to teach the real history and move forward with our movement. It's funny we bring up the CIA clearly having its hands in this Hungarian counter-revolution. And we brought up Afghanistan, too. That whole thing was entirely planned by the CIA. They wanted Soviet Union to get wrapped up in their own Vietnam, so they started that whole counter-revolution in Afghanistan and then funded the Mujahideen who became the Taliban. So all of this stuff is just tied to America, which is the global bourgeoisie. Thank you. I appreciated all the contributions from everyone. And with that, we'd like to adjourn. All right, comrades, friends, thank you. Very